Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. They consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Hi, my name is Carrie Seaburn, professional engineer, and this is Unstruct. Unstruct is the podcast where we share the stories from within your walls to help you understand how they stand today. Hello, and welcome back to Unstruct. In this episode, I sit down with Tyler Holke, PESE, with Hassett Engineering out of Castro Valley, California, and we talk about the Rapper Building, which was recently completed in the Los Angeles, California area. Tyler is a structural engineer that focuses on the erection side of things. So the engineer of record for this project was actually Arup and Hassett served as the erection engineer. So this building is a very complex structural system, I guess, The best way to think about it for me, I guess, or the best visual I can think of is a ball of yarn when you unwind it and then maybe in a haphazard or random way, you try to wind it back up and the overlaps of the bands or of the pieces of yarn are not uniform, but very random. That's essentially what the exterior of this building looks like. So it has an exoskeleton exterior structure, which means that there are interior beams and girders that span all the way to the exterior of the building. And the floor plate here we're talking about is 60 feet by 185 feet. So it is not a small structure. It does have a central elevator core that functions as a gravity supporting element and also a lateral supporting element. But beyond that, the structural beams and girders need to span all the way to the exterior exoskeleton yarn wrapped structure. So very fascinating. There's really nothing on the exterior that is straight vertical or straight horizontal. All of these lateral and gravity elements are curved and angled. So as you can imagine, during construction, this creates some complexities and 
conditions are much different during construction than they are in the final completed condition. So my conversation with Tyler was very interesting. I learned a lot just about kind of that intermediate phase or what happens from the time construction documents are issued to final completed constructed condition. So especially with this project, there was a lot that had to go on a lot of engineering and means and methods things that occurred during that construction phase that really needed the support of a structural engineer. So the erector and then the fabrication contractor, they were the same company, but they worked with Hassett Engineering to provide this engineering support that was necessary during the construction. So not only are we talking about the temporary conditions of just building a structure, this is located in a high seismic zone. So the building actually experienced three smaller earthquakes during construction, which is something that Hassett had to address and design for because in a high seismic zone, even though it's a temporary condition, there's still obviously a high likelihood that at least a smaller scale earthquake could actually happen. So this building is 16 stories high with a rooftop patio. It's a steel constructed building. And actually the goal of this was to eliminate the columns throughout. So there's a lot of really cool landscape around the building. So you can see downtown LA from the structure. You can see the Hollywood sign. And so the owners and the architects, they just wanted to keep an open floor plate so that it created those clean visual lines throughout the structure to be able to see what was going on outside of the structure. So with that comes a lot of interesting and challenging structures structural constraints and things that need to be addressed. So we kind of dig into that in this interview, and I think you're going to find it very intriguing and interesting to learn more about the wrapper building in LA. Tyler, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So Eric was the engineer of record, and then you guys took over as that kind of in-between stage of initial structural design and construction. So when were you guys invited into that process, or when did you get involved with the project? Yeah, so Arab is the design engineer, and so they finished out the project, but we work as a subcontractor to the steel rector and support them for the construction process. And we were brought in on this project back in 2016 as part of Design Assist. And that's earlier than we typically get involved in a project, but due to the complexity of this structure, they really wanted everyone involved as early as possible. And then erection started actually in 2019. So it was about three years that we were working on it. Okay, so what phase of design were they in when you guys were brought in then? They were about 50% construction documents. Okay. So yeah, they had a design to go off of. The architects and owner certainly had a vision for this structure. And so a lot of our design assist suggestions weren't able to be implemented. Part of this structure is hanging. You could say it cantilevers, but it, it's supported by the other diagrid members. And we wanted to do a more simplified support for that section. And that wasn't in keeping with the design intent and philosophy of the structure. So 
we contributed more with the band thicknesses for fabrication, ease, and assemblies, splice designs, and implementation. Okay. Yeah, I can imagine that would be very challenging. I was going to ask you about the either vertical support from below or hanging elements, because as you're providing erection engineering support for this, I can only imagine that you approach that very differently if you're hanging something versus, you know, more of a traditional vertical gravity support. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we, we do a lot of hanging jobs where you just support the bottom and then maybe increase the size of the typical columns and go up as if it's a conventionally framed building. On this structure, there's no roof truss holding this up. It's, it's just the entire system of bands. And when they are all connected, it supports the hanging side. So it was unusual to, to need that whole system like that. Okay. So when you guys are doing erection support, are you typically isolating certain areas or is it the whole structure at once? Because it seems like in a conventional framing, you could do floor by floor and have support floor by floor or section off certain, you know, grid line to grid line. Whereas with this, it was the whole structure, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we did, we create procedures for how we're going to build up the structure and that's sort of our starting point. And our temporary shoring on this goes around the entire structure and then supports it from the outside so that it remains attached for the duration of the erection. And so we do, on all buildings, we look at it holistically. And then depending on the circumstances of the structure, we either shore in a very temporary manner. And, And on this structure also, we had several shores that held a band for a week until it was tied in enough and then it was cut out and removed but our our primary temporary shores were there for the duration of the structure okay so if we can just maybe to kind of understand the structure a little bit back up a little bit so what is the gravity system of this building so the structure is sort of separated into elevator core system and then the office framing the office framing is held up by actually not even conventional steel floor framing with metal deck and concrete because the primary girders sort of adjust to line up with where the bands are at that particular floor. But it is, it's a steel floored system tying into the diagrid, which supports it both for vertical and lateral in the office area. And in the elevator core, it's a special steel plate shear wall. And cruciform columns at the steel plate shear walls, and then typical wide flange columns at the perimeter of the elevator core only. Okay, so there's a clear sight line that goes, what's the floor plate, like 60 feet by 185, is that right? I believe so. Okay, so a clear sight line across there. Yeah, inside the, the office framing. For the entire office area, it's entirely open with no interior columns, that's correct. Okay, so you had these girders that are just within the floor plate, right? And then the floor decking frames to that, frames to the girders, and then the girders go to the exoskeleton? There's regular infill floor beams supported by the girders, and then the girders spanned across to the exoskeleton. Okay, I didn't realize that. I guess all the lateral loads need to get to the exoskeleton as well. Is that right? Sorry, they share between the exoskeleton and in-floor horizontal truss framing that also ties into the steel plate shear wall core. And so they work in tandem 
to distribute that load, yeah, to the core. Okay, so when they were constructing this, did the whole exoskeleton have to go up at once prior to the floor framing being infilled, or was that able to be segmented with the floor framing? For this construction, we tried to always tie in the diagrid as quickly as possible, both to the elevator core framing and to the other bands. And so we tried to break it down as close as possible to a typical two-story teardrop, and we would erect an area of bands and either tie them into the core or tie them into neighboring bands and fill in steel prior to erecting the next set of bands, and then roughly two stories at a time before we moved on. And what we did on this job, which is very unusual for sequencing, is we had them pour the concrete on the floors prior to erecting the next tier of bands. And that was to really lock in the positions because the geometry is so critical and the diaphragm really adds to that stiffness of the system. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense because if you have a cantilevered element extending up that's not braced, it could get out of alignment pretty quickly, I would guess. Yeah, and these bands also have quite a bit of lateral force just due to their own weight, and so they want to pull apart from each other at certain stages, and so we wanted to to keep them locked in. Yes, because they are not straight up and down. (laughs) That's right, that's right. None of them are. (laughs) (laughs) So what would be a typical band construction? Like, what were the bands comprised of? What is the material for the bands or the shape? Yeah, so they are rectangles. They're at the lower floors, two foot by five foot, and constructed of between inch and a quarter and two and a half inch plate with an intermediate stiffener at those lower floors. And at the upper floors, they're a one foot by five foot box constructed of between one inch and about two and a half inch thick plate with an intermediate stiffener. And so they're, they're very large sections. Yes, yes, very decent size for sure. How long were these bands? Like how long were the segments? Let's see. I think the longest segment we had was about 65 feet. Okay. And they varied because of the frequent intersections of bands and the size of the assemblies. We had some very short sections that just ran between two bands, and we had a few quite a bit longer sections. But I I believe 65 feet was about the max. Okay. So were the box sections or the band sections, were they welded and fabricated in the shop and then brought out as segments? Is that kind of the general gist of it? Yeah, they they were fully assembled in the shop and brought out as, for the most part, they were brought out as the assembly that was immediately set. They didn't require any field assembly or connection of parts in order to be erected. All right. So with you guys being the erection engineer and doing all the temporary shoring design, how were you able to ensure that safety was considered during construction? Because it seems like this is a very complex system and seems like that would be kind of a challenging thing. Yeah, yeah. So our our shoring we designed, obviously, for the load of the structure, the dead load. We also used construction live load, and we had the concrete weight and wind and lateral considered as part of the, the design of this. This structure is on base isolators, and 
our temporary shoring runs immediately adjacent to the structure. And so for the duration of construction, we used angle braces to lock the base of the structure in place so that it wouldn't be moving back and forth, adding moment P-delta loads to our temporary columns and possibly failing them. And so that was a big component for the shoring. Additionally, like we do on all structures, we worked really closely with the field. I was out there a lot of times three or four days a week speaking with the superintendent and getting a sense of the challenges they were facing, how we, we could adjust our sequence based off site conditions, based off what they felt was possible to erect, and where they had concerns. And so we, we really work closely with the field and want to get their input because for this particular structure, no one's erected a structure like it, but they have put up a lot of steel, uh, typically. And so even if there's something in our procedure that we really think is the best way to go about it, if they see a way that they're more familiar with, we want to be able to accommodate that if it can be done in a way that works out on the engineering side. No, this is great information because so many times I think as the structural engineer of record, a lot of it falls into means and methods. So the contractor is maybe not sure about the order of construction, the order of operations, what's safest, what's best. And we as the engineer of record are designing for the final constructed condition. So there's this gray area. And when you get a complex building structure like the wrapper, there needs to be engineering support in the in-between space. So that's so fascinating to me. Yes, yes. That is very much the space that we operate in is trying to not completely take away the contractor's options and means and methods, but provide that engineering support so that it can be done in a safe manner and in a way that protects the building and, and the trades operating on it. Yeah, and I think it's so fascinating too that like you guys were involved very early on in the, the process. So for other structural engineers out there that are designing projects that are like, yeah, man, this looks like, you know, getting from design on drawing to constructed, there's a lot of in-between steps there. It's very important to bring someone like yourself, an erection engineer, early in on the design side so that you can have some input, just like it's important to bring the contractor in as well. Yeah, this project was much earlier than we're typically involved and we prefer earlier rather than later, but we do want to be part of the discussion, especially we do a lot of stadium projects and the assumptions that are made on the truss sequencing and erection really needs to be determined early on because it will affect the analysis and both with deflections, stresses, member sizes, all of that. Okay. Yeah, fascinating. You had mentioned that this building is constructed over a base isolator. So being in the Los Angeles, California area, it's a seismic zone. So there's high seismic loads that need to be designed for. So that's the reason for the base isolator. But it's so fascinating to me that like in the temporary condition for your shoring, you need to lock that in so that the structure is temporarily safe. So that was something that really stuck out to me is that you had to do an alternate consideration there and probably an alternate foundation for your temporary support. Is that correct or not? We made some modifications to the foundation. It wasn't a full redesign, but we did. We reinforced certain parts in order to be able to brace like we did. Yeah, this is a common issue for construction on base isolated structures 
is even if it's not a stability issue, which in this case it was, it could have damaged the temporary shores, it'll be a survey issue where the building can move a little bit while it's on isolators. And during construction, you really want it to move as little as possible. And so we'll usually lock it out with some form of steel bracing. And we rely on a few factors to, to make that safe. One being that the under construction building is significantly lighter than the finished building. So the lateral demands are much less. And the risk window for the the earthquake is much smaller during construction. And so ASC 37 is construction loading. And they allow you to go down to uh, 20% of the SDS factor to reduce your seismic load. And so that's a, a very significant decrease in demand. We typically don't use that large of a, a reduction in our design for erection engineering. Well, this structure alone saw three magnitude 3.5 and above earthquakes during construction. Really? Very proximal. What One was like just down the street. So yeah, it certainly happens and it, it happens a lot. And so they weren't enormous earthquakes, but it's something that, that we see happen. And so we, we want to feel very comfortable that, that it'll ride out an earthquake. Yes. Okay. So that's so fascinating to me. And I think that could also be fascinating for listeners. The fact that like, you know, sometimes we're thinking we're designing structures for an earthquake that could potentially happen someday. But in reality, when you're designing in high seismic zones, just like you said, there was three, granted they were magnitude three, but still three earthquakes that happened during construction. So as a means and methods erection engineer, I think that also just proves how important your job is that you are also considering that in that temporary condition and how important it is to plan for that or to account for that. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of discretion left up to both ownership and and construction engineers on how much to consider, but uh, it's something that we take very seriously because we've seen it happen. Yeah. So uh, when you're planning for the temporary support, are you doing analysis work for this too? Like, are you in analysis software, sharing models with the engineer of record? Or can you maybe speak to that process a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So we typically try to get the analysis model from the engineer of record if, if they're able to share it and if that works out. But we will always make some form of either partial models or full model in order to design our shoring and to check lateral on most buildings. And we, we use SAP 2000 for our structural analysis and especially on this structure. Uh, occasionally we'll use ETABs and we'll check our demands, do our lateral design. We, we do equivalent lateral force demands for construction. We don't do a full time history analysis for earthquake demands. And then and we also use construction wind pressures, which on this structure, especially since we were pouring concrete, didn't govern, but we see a lot on open framed buildings. You actually have a lot more steel area than you do in your finalized glaze structure because there's just so many repeating beams in that wind direction. And so we do. We do analysis for the structures. We, for this structure, also had to perform staged analysis. 
as part of our deliverables to the engineer of record to guarantee that our deflected shape and stresses were in keeping with their assumptions. We typically don't prefer to do staged analysis. It can seem like you're getting a lot of information on how the building is being affected by the construction stages, but it's very hard to model all the adjustments that are made during erection by the field. And so you might end up with information that isn't necessarily as accurate as if you had just ran maybe a whole tier. Breaking down into very, very small stages doesn't always result in you having the right information, even though you have a lot of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you can predict certain areas that the contractor is going to be working, but like piece by piece is a little bit difficult. Piece by piece. And like for this example, you set a band and you tie it in. And in the model, that is the deflected shape. But in real life, the contractor may adjust it when they tie it into the other band because the connection points are shop fabricated. They're detailed to an exact position. And so they work it in order to get those positions to line up. And so in your SAP model, it'll adjust and kind of fake that deformation into it. And those small deformations can quickly add up. And the effort of revising all of that in a staged model is is pretty enormous. And so sometimes you have to go to much larger chunks to get an idea of how it's progressing. Gotcha. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. So we kind of talked about it here, like you're talking about reporting back to the engineer of record. What is your scope as the erection engineer? So I think you already said you were hired by the contractor, but what is your scope or how does that work with the engineer of record? Yeah, we're hired by the steel erector typically. And we have in the code of standard practice, there's an erection bracing requirement for steel erection. And so our primary scope is, is meeting that requirement. So ensuring that lateral loads during construction will be stabilized against by temporary engineered means and that members that are in a temporary unsupported condition will have an engineered support. And so in this case, that hanging section of the building, those shores provide that temporary support until the finalized structure is completed. And then beyond the code of standard practice, the requirements put in contract documents will dictate sort of the engineering that we provide. And so in this case, the engineer of record had some additional requests that they were looking for to ensure the building met their assumptions in the fully erected condition. Okay. So then your deliverable, is it in tandem with the steel erector shop drawings? Like, are you putting together shoring plans and also giving direction for their steel shop drawings. Is that kind of what your deliverable is? Yeah, so we will work with the fabricator or rector, typically it's the same team, to incorporate our drawings into their shop drawings. So they'll be marked as temps, but they'll be in their shop drawings. And then we're required, we'll also have a stamped procedure that'll be submitted to the contractor and design team, typically for record occasionally for approval, and a calculation set to accompany that. Okay. 
for this project, how many pages was that submittal? Do you know, roughly? I don't. And it was not a single submittal. It was an ongoing uh, <laughs> series. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was thousands of pages. <laughs> thousands of pages. That's Yeah, that's great information. I was just going to guess that it's significantly more than the engineer of records submittal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. They had to d- go through a lot of peer review on this project. I'm not sure exactly what that process involved. Okay. So during construction, what was the most unexpected thing that came up? We try to do a lot of planning, so there's not a lot of unexpected things. I know as we were erecting what is called the bird's beak, and if you look at pictures of the structure, it's where the bands come to almost a knife edge in the corner of the structure. That area was very difficult to plumb. It doesn't tie into very much, and our temp shores held it vertically and supported it laterally, but getting it just right was very challenging. And when we were working with the steel erector, we often found that seemingly pulling on the member in the direction that it was out of plumb would actually help twist it more into plumb. And so instead of pushing it the way you wanted to go, you could pull it the wrong way and that would help for some reason. <laughs> and so that was... Uh, <laughs> And and that worked at a couple of times, and then they were excited to try that every time. But typically, you push it, and it goes where you want it to go. But there, there were a few cases where it was the opposite. Just try everything, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you talked about the bird's beak, I think you called it. And I'm just looking at the picture of the structure. So it looks like some of these girders actually protrude from the exterior of the bands. Is that by design? Or is that for a visual reason or an engineering reason? That is a, a visual reason. Yeah, those are added. Okay. Yeah, they, they were originally going to run through the band and for visual design purposes. And instead, the band is continuous. And then they terminate on one side and continue on the outside. Okay, so it's just a stub piece that's there superficially. Yeah. Well, it looks cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Those lines where it protrudes run the length of the building Okay. in that direction. Okay. Well, that's cool because then it gives like a visual representation of what's actually going on behind the band too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very cool. The other thing that I find very interesting about this building is that the stair cores appear to be exterior of the building. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. The stairs cantilever off from the structure as trusses that go out and then back in. And so we designed temporary shoring that we called ladder frames that went up to catch those stairs as they came up the building. And those ladder frames went up the full height of the building and supported those stairs that cantilever out. We erected them partially in assemblies and then filling in the balance. And they have a welded connection to the structure and also an embedded tension strut to the structure. And so we had to continue that support until the floors were all poured in that area and then cut loose our temporary shores and let the stairs go where they go. Yeah. And they are very impressive. They've since been, I think, completely enclosed. And so when you walk up them, 
now it's more like a traditional stairwell. But last time I was there, it was an open box cantilevering off the structure, which was fairly impressive. Okay. Yeah, that is very dramatic. (laughs) Yeah. And also seems like it would be very complex for the temporary condition when these are cantilevering out and some of them, you know, are 14 stories up in the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that is part of why we had that ladder frame so that we could brace the columns as they went up because the unbraced length between the stair extents of the cantilever were, uh, I think, about 60 feet. We were trying not to use sections heavy enough to be able to act as a column at 60 feet. And so we braced our weak axis by using the ladder frame struts and diagonals. And then we also tied into the structure with temporary beams that were then used as a working platform to access the underside of the stair structure. Okay. Yeah, that's cool and fascinating. And then do they have concrete pans as well or filled concrete on metal deck? I'm actually not sure. They're steel treads and I believe have some sort of finish, but I'm not sure. All right. So what to you was the most fascinating thing about this project? The architectural design of this project, I think, is the most interesting part. The bands are just every which way. And as engineers... We can upsize things and we can make most spans work. It's just a matter of, do we have the room to do so? But the vision of how they place those bands, and I'm not quite sure how they they came to the final locations for all of them, but they were very adamant that that was the location it needed to be, really makes it just something else. When you're inside, you can see through many of the open windows, the Hollywood sign on the hill, quite a few on the other side of town and you get large open ceiling views and then also occasionally just a band cutting across the view as a five foot steel wall and so it's impressive from the inside it's a very challenging structure to erect due to that geometry and and every member is sloping and radiused but it makes it really stand out as as something unique from even very challenging or larger buildings that we've done. Yeah, I didn't even think of the look or the view from the inside, but that is very fascinating to have clear story, open view, and then have, you know, one of the band sections running through there too. It seems to the untrained eye to be random as far as where these bands are at but obviously very strategic and intentional from an architectural perspective. Yeah, I, they had determined both the radius and position for each of these bands and had worked to finalize that position. And I don't know what their criteria was, but, but they were certain that that was where it needed to be. Okay. You know what it kind of reminds me of is like a ball of yarn that, you know, like when you're rolling it up after it's been unwound and then rolling it back up where it, it seems very random and it crosses over in weird and random spots. That's kind of what it reminds me of, except for the behind structure or the floor plate, I guess, is more rectangular and not round. But the wrapper elements or the band elements definitely look like yarn that's been rewound to me. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, especially on the helical face of the hanging side, that it sort of curves in both directions and wraps each way, like you're saying. Uh huh. Yeah, and then it goes around the building too, which is kind of cool. Okay, so if you could give the rapper a theme song, what would it be? You know, I think it would be the Beastie Boys Fight for Your Right song. Okay, okay. (laughs) Well, the construction process and the teams involved all, you know, had the things that they needed to make this happen. So each party did really need to make a stand for what they believed was the right way to do it. The architects to meet their vision the engineer to meet their design criteria and and us to make sure that it actually could be built. And then also just the end result is a party. It's it's quite a building that really stands out. (laughs) Yes, I love that. I love that. And I feel like now that it's been constructed for, you know, nine months or whatever, maybe you like need to take your portable speaker and go up to that rooftop patio and check out the Hollywood sign and crank a little beastie voice. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to get up there. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Tyler, what do you do to recharge? What do you do outside of engineering? I enjoy making it down to the beach now that the weather's getting better uh, and spend some time in the sand. That sounds awesome. What is the temperature in LA today? It's mid-70s and sunny. Okay. Hey, I'm in Iowa and it is mid-70s as well, but we have no beaches anywhere in sight. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, this has been very fascinating. We will post a picture of this building because I think in order to fully appreciate what this building is doing, what it looks like, and how it gets from design into construction, you need to see a visual of it. So we will be posting that through social media. But It is amazing. It looks beautiful. It looks unique. And I am so fascinated in how you are able to take this from drawings to construction. So Tyler, thanks so much for being on the show. And thanks for explaining that process to us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. We uh, really enjoy taking on challenging projects like this and making them a reality. So yeah, it was a joy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Unstruct and know someone else who would, please share it with them. And if you enjoy the work that I'm doing here in general, I would really appreciate your rating and review on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to help others find the show. Speaking of finding shows, Unstruct is part of the Gable Media Network, a place where you can find even more content like this. To see the catalog of shows focused on our built environment, visit gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Lastly, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe before you go so that you don't miss the next story from within the walls and how they stand today. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. 
where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.